Where this got malign, and it really did get malign, was the deliberate smearing and discrediting and undermining and vilification of eminent people, distinguished epidemiologists, public health experts, people from Harvard, people from Stanford, people from Oxford University. We all know some of these names who bravely continued to argue that there was another way to do this and for which their, their reputations were dragged through the mud. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Isabel Oakshot. Isabel, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's really good to have you on. I think listeners will have clocked straight away why I was keen to speak to you this week. You've been working on a little story called The Lockdown Files, which has provided an extraordinary insight into what was being said by the political class behind closed doors during the pandemic and during the lockdown. And what we can now see are lots and lots of the WhatsApp messages that Matt Hancock was sending back when he was health secretary, and also the replies he was getting from other ministers, from civil servants. And in all of this, they were talking about COVID, they were talking about lockdown, they were talking about the rules and they were talking about us, and in some instances, how to control us. Yes. So it's, it's really given us an incredibly interesting and at times grim insight into how the establishment was thinking during that most extraordinary moment in modern British times. Um, so there's a lot I want to ask you about, but I want to kick off by asking you why you felt it was important to get this material into the world. So you came by Matt Hancock's WhatsApp messages when you were working with him on his book, The Pandemic Diaries. And now The Telegraph has got them and The Telegraph is doing an excellent job of sifting through them and finding the important public interest stuff. Um, and I want to ask you what you thought was lacking in the public discussion or what you thought was needed in the public discussion that made you think, right, this material needs to be put into the world. Well, in one word, well, maybe it's two, the truth. That's what's needed. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. You know, I know there are some quite wild ideas on the fringes about what might really have been going on with this pandemic. You know, there was a virus. There is a virus. It is very dangerous to a small number of people. But I very quickly felt um, when the pandemic first hit the UK that the response was disproportionate. Um, now, I happen to think that the first lockdown, the first few weeks were justifiable and probably the, the wise and sensible and responsible thing to do while the government worked out what it was we were dealing with. So I've got no issue with that. Um, but as the whole saga went on over the best part of two years, and we saw an absolutely unprecedented concentration of power in the hands of a very small number of people who took steps to diminish to the point of negating parliamentary scrutiny, real parliamentary scrutiny, rather than just the kind of pretense of it, I became increasingly, first of all, uneasy and then alarmed uh, at the kind of new world in which we were living mm. um, and felt that the response became completely disproportionate to the threat that the virus posed for the vast majority of people. 
So my um, my own views on this were well have been well known since the beginning of the pandemic. Really, you know, I am a proud lockdown skeptic, and I want to know the truth of the matter. I want to know what was really being said and done uh, behind the scenes as these critical decisions were taken that affected millions and millions of lives. And what better way to find that out? than to work with Matt Hancock, um, you know, in the first instance, properly on his book. Uh, and I took quite a lot of criticism um, from those on my and, and perhaps probably some of most of your um, listeners' side of this argument for going anywhere near Matt Hancock. And I found that really strange that people couldn't quite wrap their heads around the idea that I'm a journalist, I'm a lockdown skeptic, of course I want to work with Matt Hancock. I want to know what the real story was there. Let's let's find out and let's see if that changes our, our instinctive perceptions that something was very wrong here. So that's how I came to work with Matt uh, on his book. And, you know, I am a ghostwriter. I've done 10 books in 10 years, which is far too much for anyone to do. Don't want to be doing any more for a while. Um, so it was a very natural project for me to get involved in. And I was really super excited about working with him and it was the most remarkable experience. Um, and there was never an agenda from the start that I was going to stitch him up. Um, but I wanted to just get as much information as I could and, and into his book, by the way. No, you know, not for me to gather the information and use it elsewhere, but let's see as much as we can get into his book. Um, and I believe that the partnership, as it was, did actually result in a book that was far more illuminating than would otherwise have mm. been. You know, I pushed him hard to include uh, as much that was uncomfortable as I could persuade him to do. And I want to give him credit, not that he'll be grateful for that from me, but I want to give him, I want to acknowledge that he did tend to lean towards disclosure. Um, there were very few things where he said, actually, there's just no way I'm going to admit that. Um, so that begs the question then, how was it that afterwards, you know, I was then able to produce this extraordinary stream of revelations in what became known as the lockdown files? Well, the answer to that is actually rather a, a practical one, which is that I only got given the WhatsApps a few months into my project with Matt. There are 2.3 million words, as everyone now knows, uh, more than 100,000 messages, there was no way we had time to go through all of this stuff. No way. I mean, you know, as a journalist, of course, I homed in immediately on the conversations, for example, with Boris Johnson, with Rishi Sunak, the big names. But there was masses of other stuff in there. Um, and we just couldn't have any hope of going through it for our particular project. And even if we had done, um, you know, in the end, he was trying to write a book, not his own version of War and Peace. The book was already twice as long as a normal political book. Um, so there were limits as to what could possibly be achieved within that time frame. So after the project, uh, I then was left with this material and sort of wasn't quite sure what to do with it. And many options were in my head. And in the end, I firmly believe that I've done the right thing. Uh, I think the Telegraph has done a magnificent job. You know, I've been in newspapers for 20 years and Investigative journalism is really a, a very struggling sector of our industry because it requires huge resources. And the Telegraph operation 
has been so highly resourced that I and I didn't even think papers did this anymore. You know, they put on seven people full-time plus myself plus my research and nine people full-time for the for two months on this. And as we approached publication, many, many more people came into the wigwam of trust known as the bunker. Um, so that by the last week of the project, there must have been, you know, sort of, 15 people crammed in a room that really should only ever have had six folks in it, you know, and, and a whole other cast doing the digital side of things. So they d- they've done an amazing job on mm. this. Uh, but it, my point is that it took that number of people and resources to actually go through all this material. Um, and I hope that will help people to understand how it was that this turned out to be a project as in, in the phased fashion that it was. Yeah, I think to me, it really feels like old fashioned journalism. And I mean that in the uh, complimentary sense. Uh, And I want to come back later on to the question of why other journalists have been so hostile to this project, which I think is fascinating and revealing in, in its own terms. But I think what you've just said is a very useful starting point to the discussion, because it's so important to reiterate that people like you and me and many others, we're not COVID deniers, we're not conspiracy theorists, We know what was real. We understand science. We understand the threat of disease. But we had doubts about lockdown. We were sceptical about some of the measures that were taken. And I think one of the great benefits of the lockdown files is that they have confirmed that our scepticism was justified. And I want to just take you through some of the revelations that have come out uh, of the lockdown files and what they might tell us about how the establishment operates in the 21st century. So I want to kick off with the stuff around the politics of fear. So for me, one of the most striking uh, things that have been revealed so far was the discussion where Matt Hancock was talking about frightening the pants of everyone with the Kent variant of COVID. And then even in some ways, even more shocking than that was the response of his media advisor in in the health department who said, uh, yes, that's how we will get behaviour change. So wasn't that just an extraordinary insight into their open conversations they were having with each other about manipulating the public, using fear to make us behave in a particular way, and uh, behaving fairly tyrannically to their fellow citizens out there. Absolutely. And, you know, there are many other examples of this throughout the messages. You know, I'm thinking also of the debate over masks, which is still very, very divisive. Mm -hmm. Um, I always deplored masks. I could never really believe they were making much difference. And I particularly hated the idea of children being made to wear them. Mm. And we see in these messages that basically uh, there's an acknowledgement that the masks don't make that much difference. And I'm paraphrasing here, but nobody's saying, wow, there's incredible evidence that these are really, really effective. And so what a shame that they're such a misery to wear and how awful for children. But, you know, the overwhelming scientific evidence is that that's actually going to make a huge difference. Literally, no one says that. What they do say is, well, Nicholas Sturgeon's going to make the kids wear them. So do we really want a row with Nicholas Sturgeon? Do we really want to be seen that, you know, we're doing something different? Then we have to say we think she's got it wrong. What does that mean for our response? Oh, actually, I'll sod it. It's much easier just to go along with it. Yeah. And on that casual thumbs up or thumbs down, millions of children are condemned to wearing masks. Now, it's not 
you know, it's not an Iranian torture chamber, um, but it, it's not what it is to be a child, to have a grubby piece of cloth over your face all day. Um, and it's not what it is to be a child not to be able to see other people's expressions. And I could go on listing all the things about COVID that spoiled people's childhoods. Um, your point is that decisions were made on a dime, on the you know just on a flick of a coin or whatever was a bit easier at that time. I do think it's important to acknowledge that they were in their own minds on this noble mission to save lives. I don't think there was a real malign intent. They got themselves into the frame of mind where they were the heroes fighting the enemy, and the enemy was a disease that could kill a lot of people, and, and that part was true. Um, and on that crusade, they began to lose all kind of perspective, really. And that had, I think, dreadful, dreadful consequences for a great many people. But I don't want to imply that there was some kind of evil mission per se. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And what I find interesting when I've been reading the lockdown files and also what I'd been thinking prior to the publication of the lockdown files is just um, making it clear that people like us, we're not saying that the government was sitting behind closed doors uh, with glee about this, you know, this evil intent that they had to control the masses to make sure that we did everything that they said. But what is interesting, and I think this is where the lockdown files have been just so useful and so fascinating, is the question of what happens to politicians when the crusade takes over and when that crusading zeal that you describe, that that view of themselves as the great saviors of the masses, when that becomes uh, the overarching uh, aim of their daily political life, what impact that has on them and how they talk about things and how they view the public. So one thing I, I wanted to ask you about was um, the slightly cavalier way they talked about some of the lockdown rules. So this is one thing I found quite shocking about the lockdown files. So if you look at the discussion that Matt Hancock had with Simon Case, for example, the top civil servant, um, about the hotel quarantine policy. Yeah. And they were laughing about the fact that you'd have people coming off first class flights and going into a shoebox premiere in hotel room. And, and Simon Kay said, that's hilarious. What I think is lost in that discussion is that that was a policy that actually destroyed people's lives. And that's not an exaggeration. There are lots of poor people from immigrant backgrounds in the UK who either couldn't visit dying relatives in India and Africa and elsewhere, or who did and then couldn't afford to come back to Britain, literally couldn't afford it because they didn't have the money. There's one case where a man was visiting his uh, dying relative in Pakistan, and he had to use up all of the family's savings to get back to Britain. And now that family is financially insecure. I mean, these are dreadful consequences. So what do you think happens to politicians when they can be pretty cavalier and even mocking about policies that are having a really devastating impact in some cases on people's lives? I mean, I would love to just sit here and vent about that policy because I, I found it so fundamentally objectionable mm. that people should be criminalized for leaving the country. You would be criminalized. You know, I did leave the country at a time when it was a criminal offense to do so. 
because I had to get out of this place. It was so awful here. And it was one of the best things that I did. I took the children and we left. And I took a risk in doing that. And I'm extremely glad I did so. But I find it abhorrent that people were criminalized for trying to get out of a country that had become intolerable for many of us. And I'm one of the lucky ones, of course. Um, And that people couldn't come back in again without being subjected to this horrendous, you know, you are going to be corralled in a tiny room, basically at Her Majesty's pleasure, although it turns out it's at Matt Hancock and Simon Case's pleasure. And you're going to be charged £2,000 for your package as if it's some kind of holiday that you're going to enjoy. Um, I, I just thought that was grotesque, actually. Mm. Um, but anyway, they felt that there was a good basis for hotel quarantine. And we have to a- acknowledge that many countries in the world did this. Um, I couldn't believe it when it was first mooted. I just thought that's never going to be something we do in this country. Uh, but there it is. And many other countries did it. And you know, if Matt Hancock was sitting here now, he would argue very convincingly, at least in the ears of many, that this was a way of containing and preventing variants getting out, which could have made everything even worse. So the answer is they were actually having a great time because they were they were heroes on a mission. And just imagine that sense of purpose, that sense of fulfillment, that sense of validation of your identity and everything that you've worked for. You know, it's like me working on a big scoop like the lockdown files. This is what I trained for. Um, you know, and someone like Matt Hancock's probably never going to be defense secretary and he's certainly not going to be a, a general, you know, in charge of an actual war. Um, but here was his war. And politicians, you know, that's what they they kind of dream of in a sense, um, without saying that they actually want people to suffer for it. But, you know, in truth, it was very, very fulfilling. Imagine being part of that. How incredibly, in a, in a terribly warped way, how incredibly thrilling to have that responsibility, to feel that you could save the nation. So they're caught up in their role in it all. And to me, this is perhaps the single worst aspect of it. Completely lost sight of the hour by hour, day by day reality of the suffering that their, frankly, totally unnecessary measures, for example, in the hideous isolation of people in care homes, was causing. You know, the stories that are now coming into me from ordinary people who don't have my platform, your platform, who don't have the ability to ring up people in authority and change things for the better, you know, if their child hasn't got something or whatever, you know, it's easy for people like us. If you are a single mother, like the one I spoke to um, at the weekend, who lived on a council estate, a really tough council estate in Bootle, with a five-year-old boy with ADHD and and a teenage son, in a, you know, really rough accommodation, there's council not even bothering emptying the bins anymore because of the COVID crisis. And then they sealed off the local play park, which was the only place this single mother really had left to take her five-year-old who needed to let off steam regularly. Mm -hmm. And she lost that facility. And it was so dreadful that they decided to move house. 
um, fearing, quite rightly as it turned out, that there would be more of this lockdown stuff to come. They moved house and in their new place up north, she couldn't get a school place for her teenage son. Now, by now, local authorities, for local authorities, it was a lazy default to just say, well, you know, well, he can just do homeschooling, can't he? You know, that's what everyone else seems to be doing. So that teenage boy didn't get a school place. And as the fear campaign went on, amid all this talk of new variants and other terrifying things that were all going to come and hit us, that isolated teenage boy became increasingly depressed and paranoid to the point that he wouldn't even open his bedroom window because he feared that the virus would come and get him through that window. And they tried to not put the TV on and they tried to protect him from the endless fear propaganda being pumped out. And she just couldn't shut it all out because everybody listening to this will remember it was everywhere. And in the end, I am so sorry to say that that teenage boy took his own life. And I, I am not somebody who cries easily, but talking to his mother, I, I did, I wept at that because I have a boy that age and I could so see how without my resources, a child, you know, my ability, I, as I say, I left the country at one point. She didn't have those resources. She didn't have the ability to create merry hell with the local authority because her child didn't have a school place. She wasn't empowered. There are so many people like that with variations of that stories. The widows I've heard from, the bereft people whose relatives died alone, you know, final goodbyes on an iPad. You know, it it fills me with just a kind of almost irrational level of fury, um, that level of unnecessary suffering. So if we are to flip back to the political response, I think what is so disturbing is because those in their big houses in leafy parts of London with the thrill of being at the centre of this all and all the resources that made lockdowns not just bearable, but actually rather a, a, an entertaining novelty um, for those who have resources and you know could make the best of it, they, they have no concept whatsoever of how it was for others. Um, MPs, of course, were not allowed to visit their constituents. You know, we've, we ended any kind of freedom of movement beyond your own garden. So the MPs who might perhaps have been getting a real impression of what it was like for their least well-off constituents didn't have that facility anymore. They were only doing their meetings on Zoom, weren't they? So everyone retreats to their to their nice setup. And those thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who were having a dreadful time, their voices were never heard. And still worse, the politicians in charge, who are very bright people, didn't think to ask about it. It wasn't on their radar. So nowhere in these messages, and I think this is as important as what is in the messages, nowhere in the messages do we see the health secretary or the prime minister asking, what about the balance here? What about all those people? Now, I see uh, in those messages the then social care minister, Helen Wakeley, who actually tried quite hard to persuade Matt Hancock to relax to some extent 
the ban on visiting care homes. And she was pointing out that, you know, these people in care homes don't have much to live for at all. What's the point of being there? You know, what is the quality of this existence if you can't see anybody? Um, and he was extraordinarily dismissive of her appeals, you know, because for him, this was about not being accused when all said and done and there's a wash up. Did he, you know, blithely let more people die or less people die? And there's not a qualitative assessment there of, well, what's life worth? Um, so in the end, you know, Helen Waitley, to her great credit, was persistent. And eventually Hancock just said, oh, all right, then you win. I'm not actually paraphrasing that. He said, oh, okay, you win. Words like that. It definitely had, oh, okay, you win. And I remember when I read it, I just pictured this scene in one of my favorite movies, Gladiator, where you've got at the beginning, Joaquin Phoenix, you know, he's the emperor and he's watching the gladiators and it's, does the losing combatant live or die? And it's a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And that's how it felt. Oh, okay, then you win. Okay. On that decision, vast difference is made to the quality of people's lives, but you took it casually and only because somebody persisted. So my hope from all of this um, is that next time, because there will be a next time, decisions are taken with much more thought about their impact in the round. I think those are such important comments. And um in, in terms of the first part of what you said there, I think one of the things that has frustrated me so much over the past three years has been the unwillingness of lots of people in the media and in the political establishment too, to talk about the class differential in lockdown. So, it, I mean, it was so obvious. And and some people like Jay Bhattacharya, for example, and other lockdown skeptics have made some excellent arguments about this, where you had a situation where for some people, there actually wasn't really a lockdown at all. Lots of people were still going to work. People were emptying the bins and delivering food and stacking shelves. If you are a, a single mother, you live in a small apartment, you have three or four kids, you can't look after them all when they're doing schoolwork on Zoom. You might not be able to go to the park because who knows, he'll take a photograph of you and put it on the front page of the Daily Mirror and call you a, a lockdown criminal. While at the same time, as you say, politicians were having a fine old time, they were still working, they were in their nice houses, and, and lots of the upper middle classes were as well. And you you gave a really powerful story there about the impact it had on, on one woman and her child. But across the country, it, there was a very clear, and I would argue measurable, hopefully at some point it will be measured, differential between how the lockdown impacted on poorer citizens and how it impacted on wealthier citizens. For sure, for absolutely sure. Um, and this collateral damage is something that nobody seemed to have any interest in um, at the time. And we're talking about it in terms of mental health, for example, but we all know now because the information is beginning to be collated in a sensible way about, for example, the number of children that have never gone back to school. Um, and also we've seen that this did not uh, save the NHS or protect the NHS. In fact, it actually arguably will have destroyed the NHS because the whole service was tilted towards being a COVID service. I mean, when I ring up my GP surgery now, I still get a lecture about not going into the surgery with COVID. 
you know, at what point are we going to let this thing go yeah. and accept that there are other things to worry about? Um, you know, we have the record waiting lists. It, it will take a good deal of time for it to be apparent just how many um, additional cancer cases and cancer, sadly, cancer fatalities there are um, associated with this long period in which people didn't get the treatment that they that they should have done. So I hope, as I say, that next time all of that is thought about in a much more formal way. You know, you need some kind of checks and balances. You know, you needed some kind of cabinet minister for proportionality and, you know, <laughs> kind of collateral that could have provided some kind of um, break on all of this that could have actually said, look, hang on a minute, I hear what you're saying about the need to do X, but have you considered the likely impact on Y? If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Okay, Isabel, just a couple more questions for you. I, I, I want to just briefly go back to the beginning. You said earlier that um, you could understand the first lockdown, certainly for a couple of weeks, we were told it was going to be quite short. It turned out to be longer than we had expected. And I think a lot of people feel like that. A lot of people felt that in March and April 2020, there was this new virus. We didn't understand it particularly well. People felt that some measures were probably necessary. And then people's scepticism about future measures uh, tended to grow somewhat. Uh, But one of the interesting things about the lockdown files is some of the discussions uh, politicians were having at the very beginning of all of this, in terms of there was lots of evidence that people were changing their behaviour without being forced to change their behaviour. People were staying home. They weren't going out as much. I know that from my own experience. I know I didn't go out as much. Other people didn't either. People were kind of carrying on with life as much as they could, but they weren't going to crowded parties and so on. Um, And then, of course, there's the Sweden discussion where Sweden had some measures and encouraged the population not to, you know, go to nightclubs or whatever, but they didn't have a a strict lockdown. And it's very interesting that in one of the messages, Matt Hancock says he was sick of the fucking Sweden argument and and tried to get his um, members of staff to, to disprove it. What do you think that element tells us. I really agree with you that there was no malign intent in all of this. These are not evil people. And I don't think they were sinisterly setting out to destroy civil liberty as we previously knew it. 
But they did seem to grow this instinct for control and this preference for lockdown over other measures. What do you think generated that in the early days and then subsequently as well? I think they became very entrenched in their position. And having gone for it, they then had a vested interest in um, demonstrating that it was the right decision um, so as not to look as if they'd done something that was so catastrophic that that would be the end for them career-wise and in many other respects. Uh, and actually, we see that in the one of the stories the Telegraph has covered um, was Matt Hancock's uh, aversion to reducing the mandatory period for self-isolating if people had been in contact with the virus from, you know, it started out, I think, sort of ludicrous two weeks or something, and it gradually came down. But at one point, Chris Whitty advises Matt Hancock, actually, you know, there's really no benefit to stringing this out. You know, I don't remember the exact number of days he was recommending at the time, but it was a very significant drop to what people were being asked to do, perhaps from 14 to to 7 or 5 even, uh, or 10 to 5 or 3. And Hancock says, well, I'm paraphrasing here, I'm not sure we really want to go there with changing this so drastically because then it'll look like we got it wrong before. Yeah. Um, I mean, how warped is that? You know, given that every single additional day of somebody not being allowed to circulate in the normal fashion to go to work to be a normal human being um, has huge economic and welfare costs. But no, he'd rather carry it on because he didn't want to look like he'd made a mistake or they'd made a mistake. It's weird that because you think, well, how about you just come out and say, look, with everything we now know, we think that we could actually. Um, modify this a bit, you know, and you may accuse us of having got it wrong before, but th- this was the evidence we had at the time. We're just trying to protect everybody. And I think he would well have been forgiven for that. You know, I'm not sure there would have been any flack flying over it. So I think they just became very entrenched. And I think the systematic quashing of any opposing view and where this got malign, and it really did get malign, was the deliberate smearing and discrediting and undermining and vilification of eminent people, you know, distinguished epidemiologists, public health experts, people from Harvard, people from Stanford, people from Oxford University. We all know some of these names, heroic figures, honestly, Sunetra Gupta, Carl Hennigan, you know, there are too many to mention, who bravely continued to argue that there was another way to do this uh, and for which their their reputations were dragged through the mud Mm -hmm. in a completely malign fashion. Um, And to a lesser extent, those of us, much, much lesser extent, but those of us in the media, uh, the government systematically sought to silence us and, and were very keen to paint anyone who questioned vaccine policy as an anti vaxxer um, and that was very difficult. I mean, I, I had the vaccine um, rather reluctantly because I wasn't convinced that I needed it. Um, but I had it partly so that I could criticize or at least question um, some of the policy around the vaccine from a position of having had it um, so that I can say, look, I'm not an anti-vaxxer and I'm not an anti-vaxxer. Yeah. But we're in a very weird place where you can't question whether it is or isn't okay to mandate, for example, healthcare workers as they disastrously attempted to do. Quite proud of us as a country that we actually overturned that. You know, there was a proper rebellion from 
brave NHS workers who, as it turned out, were prepared to lose their jobs rather than be forced to have a medical intervention they didn't want or feel they needed. So, um, look, this was really ugly. And the other malign thing, and something I will never forgive the then Home Secretary, Priti Patel, for, was encouraging, actively encouraging neighbours to snoop and spy on each other. And I still feel enraged when I think of that, because that is not the country that I want to live in. It's not the country that we should be. We are a liberal democracy and we don't snoop and spy on each other and we don't gleefully report our neighbours to the police for potentially spending a few hours longer exercising in the woods or, you know, having a picnic around the corner or perhaps visiting, you know, an elderly, lonely person down the road. You know, we shouldn't be that country. And what on earth happened to our leaders that they thought that that was appropriate? Absolutely. Uh, that brings me on very nicely to my my last question for you, where you were talking there about the what was malign and what was quite sinister and what was quite conscious, which was the shutting down of dissent and or the demonization of anyone who raised questions about lockdown. You, you mentioned Carl Hennigan as, as one example. I always recall when Carl Hennigan was making a very clear argument that we need to fortify care homes, we need to protect the genuinely vulnerable. A care home is obviously a concentrated community of people who are most vulnerable to COVID-19. He gets demonised as a crazy COVID denier, whereas the people who neglected to protect care homes and who allowed elderly people, many of whom have dementia, to go months and months and months without any contact with their loved ones, they they were seen, at least, as the heroes of the story. It is so morally warped that we interpret it in that way. It's genuinely quite shocking. But I found the the demonization of dissent really interesting and scary because there is this idea, I think, that in a time of crisis, we can dispense with frivolities like freedom of speech. Whereas in my view, it's in a time of crisis, especially if you're passing policies that are unprecedented, that you need more freedom of speech, more discussion, more rigorous debate to see if this is the right thing to be doing. My final question for you was about the media more broadly. So you have had some flack. You were grilled on the Today programme about releasing Matt Hancock's WhatsApp messages. If you had released the WhatsApp messages of Jacob Rees-Mogg or someone else, I'm sure the Today programme would have rolled out the red carpet. Mm -hmm. Uh, You you had a funny clash with Kathy Newman uh, uh, on Times Radio where you hilariously said to her, look, maybe if you broke some stories, you'd be making waves as well. Um, But the hostility that you've had from sections of the media, do you think that speaks to their own recognition at some level that they failed to do their job during lockdown? They failed to hold the government to account. They failed to ask the questions they should have been asking about these authoritarian measures. And in many ways, they were cheerleaders to the measures rather than um, skeptics or critics or, or simply people who asked questions. Do you think you've become a bit of a punch bag for a media elite that recognises at some level that it didn't do what it should have done during those strange two years? Well, they didn't do what they should have done. I mean, you know, I've been repeatedly asked about trust and whether anyone will trust me again. I will turn that around and say, is anyone going to trust you again? You, whether it's the BBC or Kathy Newman or anyone else, you know, Sarah Vine that has spat their bile at me for the temerity to release this stuff at 
very significant personal risk, by the way, and legal risk and all the rest of it, reputational risk. Um, This isn't jolly japes as far as I'm concerned. This is because I never, ever want this country to go through that again. Uh, And they failed to do their jobs. They can wang on about ethical journalism and you know the my my abrogation of you know some kind of um duty to this and duty to that you know without exception these people have never broken a big enough story to present them with any ethical dilemma on any scale so how can they possibly understand i've done many big stories each and every one of them has been really difficult and has presented some pretty uh delicate judgments to be made. This is this is the biggest uh, and by far the most important. And it isn't about me. And why was it made about me? Well, you're right, because these people didn't do their jobs during the lockdowns. Um, you know, my, my brilliant colleague, Piers Morgan, was quite a lockdown rabble rouser <laughs> and now has publicly admitted to his great credit on his show Uncensored, um, that perhaps he should have asked some more questions and he should have been more critical. Um, I wish more colleagues would come out and say, actually, you know, maybe I, I should have asked more questions. Maybe I should have been more sceptical. It isn't our jobs at, as political journalists or shouldn't be our job to be in some cosy club, uh, you know, to make sure that we keep getting the invitations to the nice Westminster salons. Uh, That shouldn't be our job. It should be our job to hold our politicians to account. And if they don't trust us and they don't trust me, that's probably for the good. I don't trust them and they shouldn't trust us in the media. Um, And the rest of them, those that have had a go at me, they can carry on doing their recycling, their press releases and, you know, putting out stories that are uh, just what you know, are not going to rock any boats. Um, but this is too important for that for me. Um, I've taken the hit and I was happy to take the hit. And I think it was worth it because I think that the lockdown files, in the absence of a public inquiry, and we didn't have time to talk about that, but it, that is actually at the heart of the matter because if there had been plans for a public inquiry to happen in a reasonable time frame and report very soon, then it would have been a very different judgment for me to make. But we're not getting a public inquiry reporting anytime soon. I want to say again, there is no deadline for this public inquiry to wrap up. We all know what that means. I wasn't born yesterday. It means years and years and years. So in the absence of that, people need to know so that we can draw lessons from it. And if there are holes in the story, of course there are holes in the story. I only had one person's groups of WhatsApps. Then let's get the other ones out there. And, you know, invitation to the rest of the journalists, particularly those that have criticised me. I hope they receive a cache of information like that and let's see what they decide to do with it. Isabel, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.